This is The Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer brand and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. Today's safari is with my colleagues at Traub, and we are going to review the 2019 New David's Report, and it's all about digital natives. And the digital natives you know, have really transformed the industry and really caused the incumbent brands, the big guys, to you know figure out how to do things differently. And this report has a lot of insights, uh, from a lot of work from my, my team and my colleagues who really have dissected this new part of the industry that's been so influential in moving the needle and moving others to act accordingly. So let's get started. So I'm thrilled to be here with my colleagues at Traub to talk about the 2019 New Davids. And we put out this report now for it's really four years. This is the fourth edition. And the New Davids are what we refer to as the digital native universe, both in the United States in this case, and we've done others regarding the European uh, digital native brands. And there are more than 350 of them in the United States today, and I think 250 or so or more in Europe. And they've really, over the last decade, been the central force around redefining what retail is to a new consumer. And we today uh, are joined by Kelsey Groom, Senior Managing Director uh, at Traub, and two senior associates in Daniela Fischal and Michal Tepper. And so these guys were, all three of them, central to the uh, report that was recently put out. And we're going to discuss the digital native universe and why, in fact, this is going to be the last one that we have, uh, that we will put out, because we feel that sort of the life cycle has um, you know, matured to such an extent that these brands, you know, while they, yes, are digital native, really they're just brands. And so uh, with that, I'd like to welcome my colleagues. Thanks, guys, for doing this with me. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. You're very welcome. So, Kelsey, you've been here uh, and sort of central to this study since the beginning. Uh, we did it actually, it started five years ago, but it's, it's the fourth report. It seems like we skipped a year. Tell us a little bit about why this is the last one. Yeah, well, going back to the beginning, we started this report when you know, the, the big brands that people were talking about in this space were Warby and Bonobos and, and Everlane. Um, but we realized that five years ago, there, there was probably a, broad, a much broader group uh, in various different categories. So that's how this report kicked off, was really an understanding of what the landscape looked like. And then, and then it was 100 of them. Um, and they were purely uh, online. 
Uh, and in fact, many made very public statements that they would only ever be online. And where the report is today is 360-ish brands who now have 960 retail stores um, and have aggressively uh, also gone into wholesale. So they're, they're looking at the three different channels. And I think when these brands are looking at growth today, they're looking at it from a much more grown-up perspective of saying, we are a brand and we have to find growth in the three channels that all brands have to find growth in and have to be incredibly savvy in because the consumer is quite frankly everywhere. And that's how you acquire the customer. The customer that is causing all these digital native brands to come to life is a customer that it feels like to me is trying to get a different brand than their parents or their grandparents for that matter. One might argue that that's been the case every generation. Um, what do you think is different today and why does the consumer today really insist on having their own vintage of, of brand? Well, for one, I don't think that their parents' brands were competing with Amazon. And I think that in today's world, I think Amazon is kind of the elephant in the room and convenience and the convenience that that provides and the two-day shipping, the overnight shipping. You can get anything that's at your fingertips. I think all brands need to contend with that. How are you providing the consumer with the convenience that they need and that they want and that they expect, frankly? Are you doing free shipping and free delivery? Are you meeting them where they are? Are they able to discover you? Are they able to find everything they want and anything they want because of the brand that you've provided? And I think while in previous generations, you know, you could go to the store and what you saw is what you saw. Today, when you search on the internet, you can find anything in the world. And so brands need to be able to stand out in that world, but also contend with that world and provide the consumers what they want, given what they have available to them. And I think part of that abundance of choice and that ability to be able to buy from anywhere in the world and really search online for anything you're looking for is part of why we as consumers are so interested in these brands with a purpose and a brand that speaks to them and feels like you know the brand in some way and it's a personality. Whereas in the past, I don't think that... More of a facade, maybe. Yeah, and I think it was a bit more of the the brand telling you what's in fashion and what to wear whereas or... Know what to eat, what to buy, and whereas now it's it's much more of you having a conversation with the brand, and a lot of these digital native brands were built squarely on that on, on the customer media. telling them, "Hey, can you make X Y Z?" I mean, Glossier is generally used as the best example of that—a brand built on crowdsourced, yeah. yeah. And social media and the proliferation of that over the last ten years, Kelsey. How do you think? You know, does it is it truly easier to build a brand in this generation? I think the barriers to entry are lower and quicker. It is much easier today to start your conversation with your consumer once you have the product or your mission than it was before all of that. You just have a more powerful megaphone and a community that really wants to hear it and engage with it. Just dwelling on the spirituality piece of this, we had a piece that we did here two and a half, three years ago, uh, the pagan consumer, about sort of a study in spirituality and consumerism or something like that. And 
in that we we profiled the various pillars of of transparency and minimalism and mindfulness in the construction, the DNA, the codes of these brands. Uh, Daniela, you touched on it a little bit before. Um, do we think that these are overplayed? Do we feel that they all look the same? They all pretend to do the same thing? Uh, are they being copied by the incumbents? Well, I think that's something that's very relevant looking forward into the next decade because I think we'll look back and think of the 2010 to 2019 years as the years in which all of the brands sort of figured out those tenants and those pillars and all started to look the same. And you see that with kind of the Brooklynization of the aesthetics and the minimalism. And then you go straight to maximalism and then everybody's maximalist. Everybody looks the same on Instagram. Everybody looks the same in their subway ads. And I think the 2020s will be a time in which we'll have some winners who are able to win in those areas, but we'll also have to see brands trying to differentiate themselves more because it is so crowded today. And if you look at our map, there's 350 plus brands on this map and there's more coming. Mm -hmm. So how do you differentiate yourself in a world where everybody is starting to look the same, I think is the question going forward. Yeah. And as it pertains to fashion, um, pre the digital native wave, there was very much sort of an 80-20 rule or 70-30 where 20 to 30% of your collection is really fashion-driven, trends-driven. And that's uh, missing from a lot here. The very focus of many of these brands was to be able to do a few SKUs really well in a very tight range. But in order to have that, which they've done, but in order to have that, you're missing some of the excitement and some of the newness and some of the stuff that's only going to catch the eye of a few of your customers, but it makes a bit of difference. And Kels, you're talking about the Brooklynization of every brand. Do you think that's happened in re in real estate as well a little bit? Uh, I think you see those design elements physically, certainly, but wherever you are in America, quite frankly. The Brooklyn you, of Austin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Daniela and Michal, you guys have been the uh, central flywheel of this report. Uh, what have you seen in the different sides of uh, the industry and, and some of the themes that bubbled up into this, into this report? I think something we've seen is every year we kind of notice a segment or a sub-segment sub that kind of catches the cultural zeitgeist that year. And I think Last year, we saw that with supplements. We saw a ton of new supplements brands all come up, and you kind of all of a sudden had 10 brands in the digital native supplement space when previously you might have had three brands. And I think similarly this year, we saw that with the kitchenware and cooking segment where that really hadn't been a digital native e-segment in the past, and all of a sudden, we now have eight brands that are all attacking that space of making pots, pans, trays, serving dishes. And I think it kind of tags along to the broader um, cooking and home goods sort of feel to Instagram and to life. And millennials are hosting people. They're not going out as much. And there's Bon Appetit, which is a magazine, a very traditional magazine, has all of a sudden exploded online on YouTube and on Instagram. They've really invested in the personalities that go into those YouTube videos and all these millennials and others who are watching them on Instagram and then want to host their own dinner parties, they need brands that will allow them to do that. And so 
You see that with Equal Parts and Great Jones and Caraway Made In, all these new brands that have really come up in the last year to to attack that sort of cultural piece right now. Daniela? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the other thing um, we've seen throughout kind of the course of digital natives, but particularly in the last year, were companies too that very much um, are going after a small niche of customers or segment. So for example, with Figs, which is a digital native brand targeting specifically doctors and nurses and these well-made scrubs started with one skew and now has built around it a whole category um, and a whole host of products around being doctors. And so they've really built in this trust with doctor community and now building around that. So I think that's kind of a theme that we've seen throughout and especially in the last year. They're also going beyond that consumer as well, right? It's not just for the doctor-nurse community. Right, right. So these businesses have had, uh, obviously, as you said, Kelsey, earlier, they, they swore off retail, and they also swore off pretty much anything other than digital. How are they using digital to inform now the fact that they're doing both retail but also wholesale? I think all of them, the light bulb has gone off. When I talk about the flywheel effect of the three channels, the light bulb that has gone off for all of these brands is that in order to really catapult forward, you have to have wholesale and retail and e-commerce. And if you're e-commerce, if you're using digital in part to also alert the customer that maybe you're maybe you're five blocks away from Bloomingdale's and you can find you can find it in store or Nordstrom, et cetera, that's okay. So the power of digital is in just just as important as it is to use a store to to point people to the website, it is important to use digital to point people to a store or a or a department store or wholesale channel. So Kelsey, you're technically a uh I would say a, a millennial, but we do have two you know, squarely in the center millennials in front of us. How do you feel about seeing digital native brands in the wild beyond, uh, beyond online? I think at the end of the day, it's nice to be able to interact with brands in person and have an experience. And I think overall, this whole shift and movement of digital native brands is a positive for the industry because it forces retailers to focus on building special experiences as opposed to just a place to have a transaction and a place to buy a product. And I think you see kind of more digital native brands that go into then retail are forced to think about it in a, um, are forced to think about how to build those spaces in a unique way. So for example, at Hudson Yards, when we were working with some of the digital native brands, they came in and were really pushing the limits on what they could do with the store and how they could make it an experience. And you saw it with camp there, which is there right now. And before that, Kith Treats popping up with um, Snarkitecture. And so all of these different brands that are trying to make, bring to life and make it more of a retail theater um, than just a store. And I think just to add to that, something else that we think about sometimes is we at Traub are very, in the know and we follow all of these different accounts on Instagram and it's just part of our daily lives is knowing about this list of 350 brands. But even as someone, as Morty said, who's a squarely in the millennial age group, a lot of my friends don't 
aren't part of that, what I'll call echo chamber on Instagram. And so maybe they do go to Bloomingdale's and they do go to Nordstrom and they do walk around in Soho and they actually do discover these brands in those other channels. So while it's important to own your data and own your customer and own your brand imagery on the digital channel, there are many, many people, even New York millennials who don't actually participate in that echo chamber online and they actually do discover these brands yeah you're, you're in right retail they might not even be at the the right subway stop exactly <laughs> or they well, discover it on the subway for the first time like figs is doing a big subway campaign on my sixth line which makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of hospitals on the sixth line right you go mount sinai there's montefiore there's nyu there's lennox hill everybody's on the sixth line and so they may not have followed figs on Instagram, but now they're taking the train every morning at like 5 a.m. to go do their doctor jobs and they're learning about figs. And they think fig is probably, figs is probably a multi-billion dollar global brand. Exactly. Echo chamber. Another, Daniela? yeah, I mean, a, good, a great example of that is Glossier is doing their first kind of foray into retail at Nordstrom. And so they're going into a traditional department store and they have a few stores of their own already, but I think... The founder, Emily Weiss, is quoted along the lines of saying, at the end of the day, the majority of fragrance purchases are in department stores. And so that's where we're going to be. We're going to follow the customer to that place. And, and what, yeah. were they doing something, right? With, yeah, I, I will say the, department the other interesting part, this is not coming from a consumer standpoint. It's coming from the business side of it. But what I think is really important that wholesale will inevitably do for these brands beyond customer acquisition tool and the discovery power of being in these multi-brand environments. But from the business side, it also creates a discipline on inventory management and delivery cadence and how you have to be hyper aware and in touch with what everybody else is doing and fulfilling in the store at the same time. And I think that's a very good thing. In the in the long term, to be to be more disciplined about inventory management. Yeah, but so to that end, and from the business point of view, you know, margin is also a big um, hot topic. You know, obviously, a lot about the wholesale channel, but in particular the international franchising mm-hmm. channel. Why do if there's a digital native CEO listening right now, founder, why should they care about their margin? Well. They should care about their margin because that's really, at the end of the day, how they're going to make a profitable business and what will enable them to, the healthier your margin is, the more opportunities you have to expand and use different channels. One of those today in the U.S. is very clearly the wholesale channel. I would say the next wave of this is likely the international channel. And to have the margin to be able to build in the ability to work with franchise partners in various different parts of the world so that you can have a global flagship that really your partner is spending the CapEx dollars for and you're providing the inventory and the branding. And it's a very effective global statement to be um, across the pond. So put otherwise, um, your franchise channel distribution is yet another wholesale channel because you're effectively selling them wholesale, right? Right, yeah. And I think just... Something that we looked into when we did this, a similar report with the European cohort of New David brands is that as the U.S. cohort matures and the European cohort matures, you're going to start seeing some sort of cross-pollination or, or collaboration or one is going to be the winner. And in order to be the winner, you're going to have to be able to go across to different geographies. You're not going to be able to just remain in your smaller sort of 
original geography and it's going to be important in order to create these global winners for these brands to be able to reach different geographies and different channels of distribution. We'll be right back. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage, and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry. And it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. Back to the safari. You guys sometimes refer to the different, the four different studies and, and, and we, how they had a different theme to them each time. And I sometimes translate that into the first one being, you know, David is killing Goliath. And then the second one was Goliath really isn't down and out. He's sort of got one eye open. The third one is, well, you know, David and Goliath were collaborating and doing partnerships and actually they're sort of becoming buddies. Um, and, and the fourth one, I think the theme is a little bit, um, they're kind of all the same. Um, you know, they're just brands and doing brand business the same way or should be doing business the same way as the incumbent businesses uh, always had. What do you think are some of the, the, the learnings from who in the incumbent universe is doing it well today? Do, who are the big guys playing nicely and, and actually open-minded and changing themselves to play with the digital name? Well, I mean, I think Nordstrom is an obvious one where you see all of the, for the most part, digital native brands first entrance into wholesale is coming through Nordstrom. So Glossier, which we mentioned, as well as Everlane did a pop-up in there. Allbirds has done a pop-up in there. I think another interesting kind of separate point is you see some of the Goliaths, if you will, acting as digital natives. So for example, Gap launched Hill City, which is a men's athletic line, which in many ways, you know, was launched online and in many ways a competitor to Roan or other digital native men's athletic brands. And the consumer would never know looking at it, which has led us to kind of something we speak about a lot at Traub, which is how are these brands then different? How is Gaps Hill City at the end of the day different than Roan? And Foot Locker, Michal, has done some things. I mean, what are they doing differently? Yeah, so I think you see brands like Foot Locker, which have taken more of an investment approach to working with these new Davids. So Foot Locker, I believe, has invested in Rockets of Awesome. Carbon 38. Carbon 38, and I think another brand. And... Right now, Foot Locker is doing a giant pop-up in Times Square with Rockets of Awesome, which is a digital native brand. So I think that there's kind of the Nordstrom approach, which is to work with brands in their channel, so bring brands into Nordstrom. And there's the Foot Locker approach, which is to invest in brands and then provide them support in that way. And then there's the Gap approach, which is to build these brands on their own. And so I think you see Goliaths taking many different angles to working with the new Davids, but all of them have kind of come around to you need to work with these brands. Yeah. And also what I would consider on the Goliath side is the work that many of the the big and most prominent real estate developments are doing 
to be able to incorporate these brands in a physical format in in the retail mix, um, in an environment that these brands are all learning how to do, but nevertheless, operating retail in a shopping center environment is is different than street retail or pop-up retail. So the efforts that developers are making to really bridge the gap between the know-how of how the digital brands operated to today to be able to have a, a proud presence in a Hudson Yards in the same environment that you have that you have big established brands. Kelsey, you have worked uh, for many years with Macy's and Bloomingdale's in various ways. Um, they too have, Macy's Inc., have gone into maybe not necessarily digital native brands, but different kinds of, of retailing, correct? Yeah. So what, what Macy's has done over the past few years that I think is really leaning into the space is, one, they acquired Story to incorporate um, this notion of having a place within their store, which is constantly changing with new, younger, emerging brands and products and it adds excitement to the store. They made an investment in Beta, which is, a, which is a really good example of a new operating model for how brands come, for how emerging tech, but consumer as well, brands come to life in the physical format. And they've done stuff within the, the Macy's Marketplace and their store to help, to help these brands have more of a, a partner in operating within a department store uh, in a way that makes the transition into department store world a bit easier and less cumbersome than one may think. Daniela, you've been following collaborations very closely, in particular for one of our clients um, who's keen on doing a lot of them. What is the, what is the tone, the, the, the fever pitch, as it were, that's happening around collaborations for brands big and small? Well, I think... I think the a lot I think we're seeing a lot of collaborations because brands are looking to bring something unique and just as Kelsey was saying as we're kind of missing the uniqueness or newness sometimes feeling collaborations are the perfect way for two brands to come together and a 1 plus 1 is more than 2 and bring something that customers don't expect and I think you're seeing it a lot between luxury and streetwear um, where they're able to bring t- bring a product to the world in a limited quantity in a set amount of time that is selling out quickly, that almost becomes the status symbol where you were able to get that product and have something new. It's it's almost as if some of the brands who are private labels to some stores should really think about that because otherwise they may not come off as being real brands if they don't do collaborations today, right? Well, I think one of the best examples of a Goliath brand that's just incredible at collaborations is Ramoa. They've just crushed it in terms of knowing who their customer is and collaborating with the streetwear or other sort of cultural brands that those people love and their products sell out like wildfire and then they go straight on social media. You get to show that you're someone who travels. You get to show that you're somebody who cares about style, who's in the know. And I think They've just done an incredible job of finding that consumer and going after them. And obviously, Ramoa being the little sister of Louis Vuitton, exactly. um, who is also very good at doing collaboration. <laughs> so let's dive into the 2019 New David's Report. I'd love you guys to give us your view of the statistics through your eyes. 
So this year we had 370 brands across five key categories, which we've kept consistent throughout the years being fashion, accessories, beauty, wellness, and home. And the focus was really looking at how those brands have gone into retail and wholesale. So on the wholesale side, 62% of those brands have a wholesale presence, um, which, you know, might seem surprising given that many people think these brands have zero wholesale presence whatsoever. So in fact, of the brands that had a presence in wholesale, nearly three quarters of them were in a multi-brand third-party store, whether it be a Target or Walmart or Sephora. And 60%, a bit over 60% of those brands were in department stores and a little over half were on Amazon. I think Something we've seen from the retail side is that about 30% of these brands have some sort of physical retail presence. So it's not quite as high as on the wholesale side. But between these 370 brands, they actually come to a total of 960 stores, which is a fair amount of stores. But I think what we've seen within that, which is quite interesting, is that 43% of that is made up of the top five brands, which means that between Warby Parker, Peloton, Untuck It, Bonobos, and Indochino, 43% of the entire store count of this brand map comes from those brands. So they've really kind of gone out of the traditional digital native path and really reached the next level. And on the other side of that, we see that 80% of these brands have under 10 stores. So there's really a stratification in the digital native space between the ones that have kind of, as we called it in last year's report, gone into the stars. They've really launched off their rocket ship and the brands that are still kind of trying to get there and trying to figure out how to use different distribution channels to reach their customer in the best way. And Kelsey, how do you see those stores? I mean, obviously the the fact that four of these brands have 80% of the stores. um, Do we think that it's now going to be a trend whereby everyone is going to be tripling down on retail or more measured? No, I think it will be more measured. I think in the past, call it 10 years ago, pre the, the, the decade of the digital native brands in America in general, we were over-retailed and went through a bit of a store ra- store fleet rationalization. We've learned from that. And while the digital natives didn't learn it the hard way 10 years ago, what they do have now, and they're very good at using, is the data behind where their customers are at, where they're shopping, how they can best drop a store in a zone and then create a powerful effect with amplifying it online versus having six stores in a pretty tight radius. So coming to the end here, I'd love to hear from you guys what your favorite brands are of this 350 list, starting with Kelsey. My two favorites are She Spoke, the customizable beauty brand, and Amor Ver, the women's wear apparel brand that is California-based. Um, and, and the reason for these are two very different reasons. On the She Spoke side, what they have done, and this ties into some of the spiritual stuff that we were talking about earlier, but She Spoke really said, look, the way we buy beauty is a bit backwards. We are pushed product, whereas we, it, with, we can really create the exact right color of lipstick for the person in less than 20 minutes. And you can name it, and you can put it on replenishment, and it is truly your color. And I think beyond 
beyond the actual product, which is the best lipstick I've ever used, there is something very powerful about the name She Spoke and the community with which you can build around a brand that is geared towards this notion of giving beauty your voice. And then Amor Ver, I also love because, yes, they started online, but they were very quick to embrace retail and they're very good store operators. So they probably have somewhere around 10 to 12 stores. But beyond that, from the very beginning, they embraced the, uh, the, the call it 80-20 rule of having a fashion component to their business. And they had a much broader range of products uh, than a few SKUs. And I think, um, I think the consumer sees that. There's a different way that people interact with their brand. And I, th- I think they're an example of one that is doing that very well. I'm going to go with Casper um, because I still think getting my mattress in a box when I moved to New York City and my pillow in a beautiful little cylinder, easy to open and assemble myself, is brilliant. And I love it. And it's the greatest mattress I've ever slept on. I am going to go with Everlane because I... I just have to give them credit. I wear their sweaters like four days a week. And I think if you wear somebody's clothes four days a week, then you've got to give them a shout out because that just means they're doing something right. And, you know, they got me. I love their sweaters. I recognize that maybe it's on the more basic skew side of the digital native space, but I wear them all the time. And I think that they've just, they've done something right if I'm doing that. So all right, guys. Well, thank you for doing that. And um, we will uh, therefore wrap up 2019. And uh, we'll see everyone next year for 2020's Safari. Thanks, guys. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. Until next time.